welcome to Books in the Wild, a podcast about books. If you've listened to our pilot episode, Marginalia, you may have noticed that we changed the name of the podcast, but I assure you we are one and the same. If you have not listened to our pilot episode, that's fine too. We'll start here, afresh and new. Welcome to the first official episode of Books in the Wild. Today we are going to be talking about the history of reading. Exhilarating stuff, I know, but first I'd like to begin with a brief introduction about the podcast. This won't be typical, as I too dislike arduous, long introductions, but I do feel that it may be necessary given that this is our first time together, and I'd like us to be comfortable and really know what we're getting ourselves into. My name is Carrie Schroeder. I'm a book artist based out of the Bay Area in California. My hope for this podcast is to introduce newcomers to the world of book art, as well as hold the interest of more seasoned book workers and connoisseurs. I started this podcast because as a person who works at a press all day long, mostly by myself, talking to myself and listening to podcasts, and sometimes talking to those podcasts, I thought the book art community could use some more representation in the podcast world. So in this podcast, we will be focusing on weird histories of books, tantalizing tales of bookbinding, intriguing stories about hidden libraries and letterpress lore. I am also proud to announce that Books in the Wild has been awarded a project assistance grant from the College Book Art Association, ensuring that this podcast will stay up and running on the regular throughout 2017. That being said, I would love for this podcast to be more collaborative. So if you are a book artist, a binder, printer, student, librarian, or just a bit book curious, feel free to contact me if you have any questions or comments or story ideas or anything really, because it's all healthier than me just talking into the void. You can email me at booksinthewildpodcast at gmail.com or use the contact form at booksinthewild.com. Now let's move on to today's topic, reading. What is it and how do we do it? The act of reading is something that we often take for granted. According to the U.S. Department of Education and the National Institute of Literacy, 86% of American adults are able to read and write, meaning that there are approximately 32 million illiterate adults in the United States today. Of these 86% of literate adults, 98% of them have completed at least five years of schooling. Globally, the literacy rate of men is higher than women, However, more women tend to read books than men. Literacy rates have a direct correlation to other socioeconomic issues, such as poverty, health, infant mortality, crime, and abuse. And although an 86% literacy rate might not sound too bad, only 15% of adult Americans are considered fully literate, meaning that they can read and write at a college undergraduate level. In fact, according to a 2003 study by the Institute of Education Sciences, the average American adult reads and writes at a second grade level. And although I would love to make an episode entirely about statistics, like, for example, how one-third of people who graduate high school will never read another book for the rest of their lives, or how 57% of books are not read to completion— or how 70% of Americans have not been to a bookstore in the past five years, I suppose it's time that we move on to exploring the act of reading itself. Let's begin with what is reading? Now I know, dear listener, that you may be tempted to skip ahead right now 
because of course we all know what reading is. Many of us have been doing it since the age of five or six or seven, but I implore you to humor me just for a moment. In order for the act of reading to occur, there are several processes that must be in congruence. First, there is recognition. One must be able to identify the printed letters as representative of phonetics, meaning that you see the characters and you understand that that picture is standing in for a speech sound. So you see a pointy party hat with a horizontal stripe through it and you know that that means A or ah. Or you see a half butterfly wing and you recognize B and that it sounds like B and so on. This seems really simple, but think about a language that maybe you aren't familiar with, especially one that uses a different alphabet than us. And by us, I mean English speakers using a Latin alphabet. For example, I can't read or speak Russian, which uses a Cyrillic alphabet. So when I see the written Russian language, I really am at a loss of how to identify or interpret those symbols. And although this is terribly oversimplified, it maybe gives some indication of what it feels like to be illiterate. So, recognition or identifying characters is the first step towards decoding varying letter combinations that make up word patterns. Or, simply, you can't read a word until you can understand the letters making up that word. This is called the alphabetic principle. Second, one must master phonological awareness, or the ability to sound out words based on letters and letter combinations, like I just did. With phonological. I know that PH makes a F sound for some reason, and O before a single consonant before another vowel would be long, so O, and then N, and another O, and then you have logic thrown in there, and you add the ending all, and then you get phonological. But then again, this may not be entirely correct because besides learning to navigate through all the flimsy rules of pronunciation, grammar, roots, and endings, one must also try to memorize the numerous exceptions to these rules. And if you think that's easy, try explaining how the words tough, though, and plow can all contain the same word ending, or why R-I-G-H-T and R-I-T-E and W-R-I-G-H-T and W-R-I-T-E are all right ways of spelling right, right? I'd like you to spell the word believable. B-I-L-E-E-P-H-I-P-L-E. Believable. Yeah, that'll do. Why not? Next word then. Traveling. T-R-A-B-H-E-L-L-I-N. Traveling. Mm. Yeah, whatever. That's fine, I guess. After being able to recognize and interpret the alphabetic principle and then harness the power of phonological awareness, one must also learn to follow written text patterns in the correct order. We, again, we meaning English speakers, I know that there are over 6,000 languages out there, but I just don't have that kind of time for this podcast. So, we are taught to read text from left to right, top to bottom, taking into consideration things like page breaks and punctuation, and knowing that when you end at the bottom right of the left verso page, you need to start right back up again at the top left of the right recto page. Next, if you manage to get that part covered, 
Then there is reading comprehension. This happens when you finally understand that these funny letter combinations called words form together to represent a real life or abstract concept. Picture the word house. No, no, really picture a house. What do you see? I'm going to take a stab in the dark here and guess that you might be picturing a colorful outline drawing of a house complete with a pointy roof or chimney or maybe your childhood home. Now, my research may not be that thorough or exact, considering that I just made it up right now, but I would bet that you didn't picture a house as the collective letters H-O-U-S-E, even though that if I told you to write house, this is most likely what you would do. The point is that we have accepted the arrangement of the alphabetical letters H-O-U-S-E in that order to be representative of the idea of a house. This connection is so strong that when you see the word house written out, you automatically picture an image of a house, or at least conjure the concept of house in your mind. So now we understand that letters make up words and words represent ideas. Next we learn that combinations of words strung together make sentences. So now we need to not only identify the meanings of those words, but also how they relate to each other based on their placement in a sentence. We must learn which verb is connected to which noun and which adjective is being used to describe which subject. We need to know that when the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog, that it's the dog being lazy and that it's the fox doing the jumping. The sentence, the lazy brown dog jumped over the quick fox, does contain all of the same words, and yet the meaning is different based on placement of these words alone. To further complicate matters of reading, in order to truly read and comprehend a longer text, such as your everyday paperback novel, we must hold in our minds what we have just read as we move forward through the book. So we read a page of text, then we flip that over, thus covering up what we have just read, and now we must rely on our own faulty memories to string together the plot and garner meaning. We don't tend to memorize texts exactly as they appear. We remember the gist of things, key elements that stick out to us, the overall plot. We tend to make predictions about what will happen next, which also has an effect on the reading experience. For example, if you want the main character to fall in love or maybe fall down a hole, you're going to be on the lookout for clues in that text to support your predictions, which may color your interpretations. This is one reason why people can have such different experiences reading the same book, or we often discover new things with each rereading of our favorite book. When we have a strong enough grasp on language, we can often read and comprehend text that includes words that we have not yet learned the meaning of. I'm going to repeat. It means that we can read words and understand what's happening, even though we've never learned those words. That is an amazing superpower to have. This is done by using context clues. We navigate through text using words we do know as guides to help us figure out the unknown word. We also run an analysis on the unknown word, trying to identify any known root words or endings. This ability is called fluency. Being that there are approximately 175,000 words in the Oxford English Dictionary, and the average American college graduate can comprehend about 50,000 words, but only uses about 5,000 words in their daily life, it is fluency that allows us to traverse complicated texts 
or potentially navigate through a sea of over 100,000 unknown words. A great test of fluency could be the poem Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll in Through the Looking Glass, read here by my dear friend Martin Kelly. Twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the way. All mimsy were the borogoves and the momraths are grey. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun, the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the mansome foe he sought. So rested he by the tumtum tree, and stood a while in thought. And as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock, with eyes of flame, came whiffling through the tulgy wood, and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. O frabjous day, kalu kalay, he chortled in his joy. Twas brillig in the slithy toves, did gyre and gimble in the wave. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the momraths are grey. Lewis Carroll places a lot of faith on his readers to decode the poem. And we as readers focus on the words we do know in order to comprehend the ones we don't. In my research of this poem, I found a few strategies for interpreting the unknown words. For example, the slithy toves. Because slithy ends in a Y, and there is no punctuation separating it from toves, we can assume that it is an adjective being used to describe toves, which is most likely a noun because of the article the. And even though we don't quite know what slithy means, it does stir up some, comp- some comparisons to words like slime, slither, writhe, so we can form a general feeling of what that word might imply. Alice herself had a similar experience when reading the poem in Through the Looking Glass. It seems very pretty, she said, when she had finished it, but it's rather hard to understand. You see, she didn't like to confess, even to herself, that she couldn't make it out at all. Somehow it seems to fill my head with ideas, only I don't exactly know what they are. However, somebody killed something, that's clear, at any rate. And this, my dear friends, is called reading. Okay, I get it, Carrie, you may be saying. However... I can't hear you, and this is pre-recorded. Now with reading comes reading rituals, which I find especially interesting. Where are your favorite places to read? Do you prefer to read while outdoors or inside? Do you eat or drink while you're reading? Do you read silently or aloud? Personally, I like to sit in a cozy couch or a bed piled with blankets with a never-ending cup of good coffee. The room should be as quiet as possible with warm, natural lighting. 
while I read silently, of course, because reading aloud to yourself is insane. The act of reading is personal. There is a relationship established between the reader and book. It is, for the most part, a solo, intimate activity. A book's interpretation can vary wildly from reader to reader. In order for two readers to have the same experience of a novel, they would need to have the same reading comprehension skills and vocabulary. They would need to come up with the same interpretations for metaphors and allegories, and have the same level of knowledge that may be referenced in the text. This doesn't even cover the differences that would occur due to the reader's past experiences or personal bias or social and cultural conditions. This is one of the reasons why Fifty Shades of Grey was a bestseller. We don't even necessarily read in the same way. As I mentioned earlier, rules for reading are flimsy at best. And so when I stated that we read from left to right, top to bottom, that wasn't entirely true. I'm sorry to have lied to you. But it was discovered by the French ophthalmologist Louis-Emile Yaval in the late 1800s that our eyes don't actually follow text in a continuous line, but rather make short, rapid jumps between words, called saccades, intermixed with lingering pauses, called fixations. The average reader's eyes jump around sections of text. You skip anywhere from 1 to 20 letters at a time. Each time the eye rests, it's called a fixation, and that allows you to process the information from the text into your mind. During saccades, or the eyes jumping around part, vision is actually suppressed to limit the amount of information being processed. Readers' eyes will actually jump back and forth over and over, including rereading text that has already been read, in order to better process the information. So it's actually during these brief fixations, or pauses, that we are truly reading. In other words, we can really only intake so much information at a time, and then we need a moment to process that information. Podcast-wise, studies have shown that listeners tend to tune out after about 20 minutes of talking, which means that we are due for a short break as well in order to process and reflect on the information. It's intermission. Rise and stretch time. Time to refresh yourself and visit our snack bar. Got a yen for hot popcorn? Your favorite soft drinks are sparkling cold. The juicy Frank sizzling hot. There's delicious coffee freshly brewed. And all kinds of ice cream and candy to tempt you. Showtime will be announced loud and clear to get you back to your car in time. So stretch your legs. Come to the snack bar now. Welcome back. Well, now that we've covered the how-to, let's delve into some of the history of reading. Cuneiform was a writing system developed by the Sumerians in the 4th millennium BCE. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to start that far back. But I just wanted to point out how long reading and writing have been an integral part of civilization. Even the Codex has been around since the 4th century. The Codex is, in, in layman's terms... A regular old book, 
meaning that it consists of multiple pages attached along one edge with a spine and cover to be read by flipping through those pages. The development of the codex has many advantages over, say, scrolls or tablets. Codices were portable and more compact. They could be held in one hand while turning pages with the other. They were more economical, making better use of material by allowing both sides of the page to contain content. They were more structurally sound, often having a protective cover of thicker material so that the pages inside lasted longer. And less stress was placed on the pages by lying flat instead of being repeatedly rolled and unrolled, like in a scroll. This is a fun fact to point out the next time someone declares that e-readers or computers are going to make books obsolete. Even if we started our argument with the invention of the printing press, which is when we really started seeing widespread printed books, we're still talking about nearly 600 years ago. In comparison, just in my lifetime, I've witnessed the rise and fall of 8-tracks, cassettes, hi-8s, floppy disks, Betamax, VHS, Laserdisc, CDs, DVDs, mini-DVs, and Blu-ray. Even my cell phone, which is just barely four years old, is laughably obsolete. And by obsolete, I mean its internet connection isn't the greatest, and its camera is kind of junk. And yet, just about a decade ago, we had phones that only made phone calls. And so while I'm stewing about how PlayStations are not backwards compatible, and how I can't believe Sony has the audacity to re-release PS3 games for the PS4 for nearly the same price as if it were a new game, and yet of course I'm going to buy my favorites anyway because I'm a sucker, the one technology that has not let me down is the book. And while ebooks may be more compact, supposedly more environmentally friendly, and in some cases less expensive, They're going to be hard-pressed to usurp the book. There's something about the heft of holding a book in your hand, the sense of place as you move through the pages and you can physically feel your progression through the story as the final page comes nearer. There's something about the smell of paper and ink, a little bit like wood pulp or cotton mixed with hints of vanilla and slight musk. There's something about books that no digital incarnation will be able to replace. So don't worry, fellow bibliophiles. We are safe. Well, this concludes our episode on reading. If you would like to read more about reading, my recommended book list would be A History of Reading by Alberto Manguel or What We See When We Read by Peter Mendelssohn. I hope you had as much fun as I did. I'll be posting a new episode in about two weeks. And in the meantime, you can add us on Facebook and Instagram at Books in the Wild podcast. Check out our website at booksinthewild.com. And subscribe on iTunes or your favorite listening app. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends. And if you hated it and it made you miserable, then share it with your enemies. I'm Carrie Schroeder, and I'll be here next time on Books in the Wild.